0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 22, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. For citizens of Hong Kong feeling the stresses of pressure from Beijing, one option offered by a British parliamentarian is this. Give Hong Kongers British citizenship. What are the implications of that plan? Could it actually lower tensions? Generally, what does pressure from expats do to or for their home countries? Cato's Chris Preble and Alex Narasta comment. A British parliamentarian, the chair of the uh, Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, whose name I will not try to pronounce, but it's uh, his first name is Tom, he suggests that uh, as a means of reassurance, and I assume this means to protesters in Hong Kong, Great Britain should provide citizenship to... Uh, To people in Hong Kong and others have suggested that, frankly, this should have happened 20 years ago when Hong Kong negotiated the transfer of that uh, hunk of land to China. So, Chris, you uh, have some thoughts about about this idea, Um, you know, as as a foreign policy matter. Uh, that would be both a nice gesture but would it be could it be perceived as as threatening in a way
1: well I don't really think it would be perceived as threatening and it's certainly not as threatening as other things that that the US government or other governments might threatened to do against the Chinese government if they were to use force against protesters in Hong Kong. It it just, this all started, we had a conversation among scholars, uh, just an informal lunch discussion, and uh, Ryan Bourne called my attention to this, which I had not seen. Um, and I recalled an article that I wrote many years ago, long, long ago, uh, in Reason Magazine, sort of talking about how libertarians should approach um, Helping people who are suffering under authoritarian governments and one of the ways that I had said at the time was if authoritarian governments are confronted with the prospect of their people leaving um, might they reconsider their policies in a way to try to prevent the brain drain. Simon Lester, who was also in this meeting, he pointed out, well, maybe they would be happy to get rid of the troublemakers. And on balance, they decide that that it's not worth making the reforms. Um, Of course, we have a very dramatic example of this in East Germany in the Cold War, where the East German government confronted with um, a mass exodus of talented people, Uh, ultimately in 1962, chose to throw up a wall to prevent them from leaving. Um, It turns out, I, again, I didn't know this. It was very uh, fortuitous. M. Ashford pointed out to me a body of literature by uh, political scientist Albert Hirschman, who wrote about what's called exit voice and loyalty. So there's a whole body of literature about this. And over the course of the last couple of days, I've been reading this and learning more. Um, about this whole notion is that do you provide um an incentive for for people to speak up against a government if they believe they can leave or do they just leave and not try to change the government from within so it turns out that there's some tension uh between this this these two options of either exiting or or uh, speaking up exit or voice.
0: Alex, has this ever happened before, that is to say, uh, people in some sort of uh, dire straits being offered essentially citizenship somewhere else?
2: Not citizenship per se, but a lot of countries have offered folks in uh, neighboring or close countries the ability to leave and get basically essentially immediate permanent residence in this country. So the United States did this with Cubans. And we've welcomed uh, until 2016, when President Obama ended the wet foot dry foot policy, uh, the United States has welcomed several waves of Cubans and essentially uh, let them stay by granting them very uh, uh, simple, easy rules to permanent residency, much easier than have been offered to basically any other group of people. In Canada, in 1989, they changed the rules to allow folks from Hong Kong who are studying in China, in Canada to basically be able to stay if they want to, and that was done in direct uh, for, for two reasons, one, Canada realized these folks are very talented, uh, skilled and gaining a, an excellent education in Canada. And two, a lot of them were worried about going back to Hong Kong because of the impending transition of its governance to China in 1997. As a result... Uh, From about 1989 to 1997, 225,000 people from Hong Kong uh, immigrated to Canada, which is a substantial proportion of that city-state's population. Now, after the immediate transition of sovereignty to China, uh, things didn't really get worse in Hong Kong. The Chinese government was pretty good for a little while, not making things uh, too totalitarian anyway. So, a lot of those folks um, got dual citizenship in Canada. They went back to Hong Kong to continue work because it's it's such a vibrant and free economy. And now a lot of them are going back to Canada, partly because they're older now and retiring, but also partly because of the increased uh, repression in uh, Hong Kong put upon by the Chinese central communist government. In fact, many of the warnings issued by the Chinese government to foreign governments not to meddle in what's going on have been directed to Canada because Canadians of Chinese descent, who are are there are uh, very involved and vocal in a lot of these protests.
1: Right. And that's one of the things I saw in one of the articles that Emma shared uh, is the, the ability for Exile communities to to organize and mobilize and pressure uh, their former um, homes uh, to re- to reform from outside as expatriates as exiles uh, is much greater in the modern era than it was you know uh, 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 several generations ago uh, and so I do think you see um, um, in the case you know, Alex points to a great example of the you know the Chinese being concerned I mean yeah the Chinese government being concerned about uh, Chinese expats. in in Canada. In earlier periods, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein was worried about uh, Iraqi expatriates uh, here in the United States. The Iranian government is concerned about uh, Iranian expatriates. Uh, Those... Folks mostly fled after the revolution, right, in 79. Um, So there are certainly examples where uh, large expatriate communities continue to be a pressure group from the outside, uh, and then the question is, are they more effective um, uh, speaking out as expatriates, or would they have been more effective uh, had they remained in the country and, and continued to pressure from the inside?
2: And there is, um, as Chris mentioned, you know, a, a wide literature on this. We wrote a short paper about this in 2015. So just a summary of, of this literature, not looking at revolutionary changes or massive changes in government, sort of marginal changes uh, when it comes to political freedom and economic freedom, just summarizing some of the literature on this. So it's not just radical changes that occur, but folks who leave, say, uh, African countries that are poor or the Philippines or other countries or even Mexico that come To the United States or other liberal Western countries, uh, when they return home or sometimes with just communication with folks back in their home countries, uh, it creates liberal change there uh, sort of along these margins. So, there's a wonderful example of the PRI party, which dominated Mexican politics from the 1920s up through the 1990s, and the way they won re-elections was by going to local areas and say... The amount of money you get for social programs depends on the vote share for the PRI. That began to break down when Mexicans came to the US in large numbers in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, were sending money back home so their families had another source of revenue. They weren't dependent anymore upon uh, PRI largesse in order to sustain themselves, in order to do well economically. That sort of broke the back of this party mon- uh, monopoly in Mexico. There have been a lot of institutional changes in Mexico since then that are largely positive. Uh, adoption of better trade agreements, uh, privatization of state-owned enterprises, uh, et cetera, as a result of this. So by having folks leave, it's it's- certainly influences, I think, uh, more revolutionary situations, um, but it can also influence just marginal, smaller changes, too. So,
0: uh, Chris, as a foreign policy matter, if Great Britain were to make this sort of blanket guarantee uh, to people in Hong Kong, uh, would, do you think that would quell protests to the happiness of, of the Chinese, or might it make things more, uh, more tense there?
1: Well, I have a hard time seeing how things get much more tense again, short of violence, which is something that you know I check my Twitter feed every day or several times a day to see if we've tipped over into that, because there's been a, you know concern about that for for you know a couple of weeks now. Um, but short of of violence, uh, I think that it could be a safety valve of sorts. That's sort of how other people have looked at these uh, sorts of protest movements in the past. Um, th- look, let's let's be clear: relocating away from family and friends to a foreign country is a is a difficult decision. Most people don't do it, and so um, while while there is is usually some path of exit available, um, uh, most people would prefer uh, to stay in. The, the place of their birth or where their families are and to try to make them better from the inside. But but uh, Hirschman's argument is that the ability to leave um, uh, is is uh, both uh, sort of a, a fundamental human right. This is sort of the, our, our perspective as libertarians, but it also can have reform uh, effects. And so, you know, when you write something, what was it? It was 14 years ago. No. 16 years ago. when you write something 16 years ago and you go back and look at it and you sort of cringe a little bit and say, I know I was young, I was naive and uh, what I didn't know what I was talking about. But I look at this in passage and I say, nah, I kind of shrug my shoulders and say, well, maybe I was onto something. There some, seems to be some truth to that. I, and, and really it was a fun experience for me to learn what others, uh, you know, others in other disciplines here at Cato knew about this already, what Alex and his team had written about over, the, you know, that I wasn't with familiar with. Um, and so as a foreign policy matter, it's a reminder that foreign policy isn't just about foreign policy. It's about it, it touches on lots of other uh, policy matters as well.
0: So, uh, you know, Great Britain feels a responsibility to uh, people of Hong Kong in in some ways. And, and maybe they maybe they're uh, people of Hong Kong are entitled to to have that responsibility bestowed upon them. but uh is there are there any groups of people that the united states has some responsibility for i'm thinking with respect to mexico uh the you know a great deal of the cost of the us led war on drugs has been has fallen on mexico uh and the united states has exerted enormous pressure on countries throughout the world to uh undertake uh their own wars on drugs uh do, does the united states have any responsibility to uh, the countries where we have essentially imposed a lot of US policy. I
1: wouldn't say legal. I say maybe from a moral perspective. But then we might argue that governments don't really have moral obligations. Governments have have legal responsibilities and obligations. Look, there have been many instances, not just in the context of the drug war. I think it's a good question, Caleb. But in the in the wake of the collapse of the South Vietnamese government in Southeast Asia, you had not merely uh, uh, Vietnamese fleeing from South Vietnam. You also had you also had the Hmong population who the United States had worked with in Cambodia, many of whom came to the United States. Uh, there have been and other instances have been concerned for example about Iraqi refugees people who had worked with the US government as translators and uh, facilitators during the U.S uh, military presence there during the uh, late aughts. um Kurdish population now of course we're talking about uh, perhaps a durable peace settlement of some sort with the Afghan people will some Afghans uh, are they will they not be confident in their ability to live safely in a uh, in Afghanistan after the U.S departure how will we treat uh, their uh, applications for refugee status or or to emigrate to the United States. I think each of these are sort of taken on a case-by-case basis.
2: And uh, another example is the Philippines. So, the United States government during World War II uh, offered green cards to Filipinos who fought in uh, insurgencies and along American troops to liberate um, the Philippines. Uh, After the war, those promises were not followed well, but later on, decades after the war, they were sort of uh, followed uh, pretty uh, much across the line. The Trump administration recently ended that program um, after they assumed that basically everyone who was going to take advantage of that uh, program had already done so, but that was just you know, one of the many examples of, um you know, in addition to what Chris mentioned of the us government feeling some kind of responsibility, but most of those have to do with um, you know, u.s military involvement overseas um not so much like a u.s colonial responsibility, which um some folks think the u.S has had toward Cuba or should have had toward Cuba or the Philippines at different times. And that might have influenced our policies toward Cuba uh, at different times, but I think, The main reason was we had communist country right off our border and no matter... Whether that was an American colony at one time or not, I think we probably would have had the same policy toward them.
1: Right. I mean, the Philippines is unique because they were one of the only, you know, former U.S. colonies to actually attain independence. Whereas uh, the Great Britain, the U.K., has many such countries that had that status. So I, I do think it's hard to find uh, similar cases, uh, many similar cases in the U.S. experience. Whereas with respect to the Brits, there are there are many such instances.
0: Chris Preble is vice president for defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute and Alex Narasta directs immigration policy studies. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.